0: In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made human beings in His image to rule the world on His behalf, and everything was good. But sadly, that initial state of innocence didn't last long. Sin enters the story in Genesis chapter 3, and God's
1: good world and everything in it, including us, was corrupted. But there's good news. Immediately after this, God makes a mysterious promise to confront and defeat evil at its
0: source. Join us as we study the promise of God, the third episode in this series on the true story of the biblical narrative from Genesis to Revelation. This is Grant, and this is Jerome. You're listening to Reconciled, where we explore how Jesus finds us where we are, wherever we are, and leads us to where we need to be. Welcome back. In this series, we've chosen a few key verses that will take us through the story of the Bible. Last time, we looked at how God created the heavens and the earth and how he made human beings in his image to cultivate the Garden of Eden and rule the earth on his behalf. But now, in Genesis 3, it all comes apart. Right, sin infiltrates
1: God's creation and wrecks everything. But God knew this would happen and had his plan ready to set in motion. This promise that we're going to look at seems pretty obscure at first, but as we read the rest of the Bible, it unfolds in a magnificent way, leading
0: us straight to Jesus. So reading from Genesis three fourteen to 15 It says that the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This
1: passage is sometimes called the Proto Evangelium by scholars because it's the very first announcement of the Gospel in the Bible. What is so striking about it is how soon it appears in the story after sin. This shows not only God's foreknowledge of events, but his predestined plan to defeat evil and save humanity. The apostle Paul calls this God's eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, a plan which Peter says was foreknown before the foundation of the world.
0: Okay, so let's backtrack a bit so we can get our bearings. What just happened to bring about this promise? Well, as we
1: looked at last time, Adam and Eve were placed in the Garden of Eden, a paradise within creation, to work it and keep it. That's Genesis 2.15. God planted all these wonderful fruit trees in Eden that they were supposed to enjoy and cultivate. And in the middle of this orchard garden, there were two special trees.
0: And those were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil.
1: Right. And God told them they were free to eat from every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, God said. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die.
0: So as long as they didn't eat from that one tree, they would have gone on living forever because of the tree of life. But what made the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil so deadly?
1: Well, the knowledge of good and evil is the ability to determine good from bad, what constitutes morality. So with this restriction, God is saying to Adam and Eve, hey, leave that part to me. I'll set the moral boundaries. I'll define what's right and what's wrong for you. You just trust me and I'll guide you so that you don't have to figure out that stuff for yourself.
0: So the tree was a test whether or not they would trust God's definition of right and wrong. It's interesting that God didn't put a fence around it, but put it right in the midst of the garden.
1: Yeah, this teaches us that they had the freedom and the dignity of choice that God made human beings with a will of their own. And God is warning them that if they refused to trust him, if they wanted to live outside the boundaries that he set up, it would result in their death.
0: So trust and faith equals life, and distrust and disobedience equals death. The next chapter tells us how they listen to a talking snake instead of trusting God.
1: That's it in a nutshell. The serpent approached Eve and planted doubt in her mind about God's trustworthiness. The serpent said, "'Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden?' this made God out to be much more restrictive than he really was. Then the woman responded by explaining that, no, God only forbade the one tree and that it was for their own good, lest you die.
0: But then the serpent flatly denies what God said. You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He says that in Genesis 3. He seems to be suggesting that God gave the prohibition because he was trying to hold Adam and Eve back, which in a sense is kind of true, right?
1: Yeah, the best lies are those with just enough truth in them to deceive us into believing them. The fruit wasn't necessarily poisonous. It wasn't like Adam and Eve dropped dead on the spot when they ate it. And after they ate it, they did know about good and evil, and they were, in a sense, like God.
0: But they found out about good and evil in a really harmful way through personal experience rather than trusting what God said.
1: Exactly. It was a knowledge born of sin, which God would have saved them from had they trusted him. The serpent made God seem oppressive and self-serving. But once they sinned, Adam and Eve found out how true God's warning really was.
0: Genesis 3, 7 says that, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And then chapter 2 ended with the statement, The man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So it looks like after they sinned, they recognized they were guilty, and now they are ashamed.
1: Yeah, they had lost that childlike innocence. So they tried to cover their bodies up and hide themselves
0: from each other, and then they even tried to hide from God. So what happens next? What What's the fallout from Adam and Eve's rebellion? You, you already mentioned that they're hiding from each other and God, but what else?
1: So not only did sin disrupt their relationship with one another and with God, but it also fractured all of creation. I mean, the earth itself was changed. The natural order was turned on its head. Instead of man lovingly leading the woman and ruling over the beasts of the field together, which was God's intention in Genesis 1, the beast, the serpent, led the woman who led the man, which resulted in the corruption of the world. And Adam and Eve were then banished from the garden.
0: And that's significant because they're kicked out of the garden, and that specifically means that they lost access to the tree of life. So that means death, right?
1: Exactly. Although physically they would live on for hundreds of years, death became a reality. But remember the last episode we talked about how God formed Adam from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life?
0: Right, so we have this idea of dirt and divine breath, the physical and spiritual parts of humanity.
1: Yeah, well, because of sin, not only is the physical body subject to decay, but also the spiritual part of us is dead, because it's cut off from God. And as we continue to read Genesis, we see the cancer of sin spreading throughout the world with death in its wake. In the very next chapter, Cain murders his brother Abel. And then in chapter 5, a genealogy which takes us from Adam to Noah...
0: It rings with the refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. But before all that,
1: God presents a series of three curses pertaining to each person involved, the
0: serpent, Eve, and Adam. And that's where our text comes in, Genesis three fourteen through 15 We're focusing on the curse directed towards the serpent, but before we get to that, can you summarize the other two curses to Adam and Eve? Sure. These curses were not
1: arbitrary punishments from God, but they were the natural result which corresponded to the choices they made and the people who made them. Adam and Eve would both suffer pain, that is prolonged toil and misery in their respective roles, Adam as a worker and Eve as a mother and a wife. The man who was created from the ground would struggle to get the ground to produce food Adam's primary work of farming would result in prolonged pain genesis three seventeen to nineteen whereas the woman's unique role in childbearing would be increasingly painful, and this pain doesn't merely refer to the physical pain women suffer in childbearing but it would also include the emotional suffering of child rearing. The word found here carries both meanings that is the pain of raising children in a sin-sick world.
0: And we see Eve experience that firsthand when she sees that her own son Cain kills her other son Abel. Exactly.
1: Well, the curses upon the man and the woman were very severe, but they were indirect. They were mediated curses. Notice the ground was cursed, not Adam. And Eve's womb and her role as wife and mother were cursed, not Eve herself, so their life was certainly made more difficult, but their situation isn't hopeless. They were still blessed, as Genesis 1.28 says, but that blessing is now mingled with
0: sorrow and pain. In contrast to Adam and Eve, the serpent was cursed directly because it says, cursed are you in Genesis 3.14. Mm-hmm. So there is hope for humanity, but none for the serpent?
1: That's right. The serpent's days are numbered
0: and wrapped up
1: in the curse to the serpent is the great promise of humanity's salvation.
0: So let's look at the words of the curse itself. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. Cursed are you above all livestock. Does that mean that all animals were cursed, but now the serpent is cursed even more than the other
1: animals? Well, some Jewish rabbis interpreted it that way. In fact, some of the ancient people believed that all the animals could speak in those early days of our world, but the curse brought an end to all that. We can't be certain, but there was certainly a much more familiar relationship between human beings and animals in the beginning. If you look at Genesis chapter 2 and all the animals are paraded before uh, Adam and he's naming them all, that signifies a different kind of relationship then. But we can also interpret this curse as falling on the serpent alone.
0: Okay, so what about the next bit then? So, on your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Don't snakes already move around on their belly?
1: (laughs) Yeah, some think that this is an explanation for why snakes don't have legs. There were rabbis who claimed that before being cursed, snakes actually had legs. But we don't have to take this literally because of the next line. Snakes don't literally eat dust. So God is probably using both expressions to describe the serpent's humiliation.
0: Now on to the last part of the curse. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel enmity is hostility friction animosity but it seems to be more than a prophecy about why people don't like snakes today <laughs> the the pronouns are interesting here because there seems to be a progression you and the woman then your offspring and her offspring and finally he and you right the
1: hostility between the serpent and the woman is evidently going to extend to their offspring or their descendants The serpent opposes the woman in line one, then there's a war between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman, but in the third and fourth line, the woman's offspring becomes a he, and he's directly opposing the serpent itself.
0: But what about this mutual attack, this bruising of the head and heel? I get the image of a man trying to kill a snake by stepping on its head, but then at the last minute, the snake strikes out and bites his heel.
1: Yeah, these are two stock metaphors in the Old Testament. Attacking or grabbing someone's heel meant trying to supplant them, taking over their position. For example, when Isaac and Rebekah's twin sons were born, Esau came out first, but Jacob came out holding his brother's heel. And this is how Jacob got his name, one who takes by the heel, a supplanter, a cheater, a deceiver.
0: So this may be indicating that the serpent is going to try to deceive or trip up the offspring of the woman. But if the snake is poisonous, a bite on the heel could be deadly. Is that a mutual destruction? Yes
1: and no. Uh, It's all going to make sense later on in the podcast when we get to Jesus.
0: Okay. The other image, stepping on the head of the enemy, that one seems pretty clear. The woman's offspring will conquer the serpent.
1: Right. This is another common Hebrew idiom for subjugating the enemy. In King David's song, Praising God's Deliverance, he said his enemies fell under his feet in 2 Samuel 22. In Psalm 8, David's poetic reflection of the creation account in Genesis 1, he says that God has given humanity dominion over creation and put all things under his feet. And in Psalm 110, David prophesied that the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool.
0: So the serpent will be defeated by the offspring of the woman, but the woman's offspring is bitten on the heel in the process.
1: Right. And it's important to note That it's the woman's offspring who is emphasized as defeating the serpent, not necessarily the man's. It's her seed, not his. Now, obviously, the descendants of Eve would also be the descendants of Adam, but God emphasizes the woman's role here. God is saying that the woman who was deceived by the serpent to bring about the fall of humanity will ironically become the instrument of the serpent's own
0: defeat. So the woman's unique ability to bear children will make it possible for this hero to be born into the world and defeat the serpent. Right.
1: This promise of the woman's offspring shapes our reading of the rest of Genesis and even the entire Old Testament. God's promise rests on the woman's ability to bear children, the continuation of human life. And Adam names the woman Eve, which means life giver because she was the mother of all living.
0: And yet, the very next story is one of murder, the taking of human life. Right.
1: Cain kills his brother Abel, beginning the pattern of the hostility between the offspring of the serpent and that of the woman. Listen to what God says to Cain. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground. And that sounds exactly like the curse that's put upon the serpent. Right. By murdering his brother Cain showed that he was one of the offspring of the serpent, while Abel was righteous and innocent, showing he was of the offspring of the woman.
0: It's interesting that instead of the ground being cursed, like it was for Adam, Cain is cursed from the ground.
1: Right. God said, When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Whereas it would be difficult for Adam to farm, it's impossible for Cain. So Cain is doomed to live this nomadic, cursed existence. And then later on, Lamech names his child Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief
0: or rest from the painful toil of our hands. And of course, it was through Noah and his family that the human race was saved from the great flood. Yeah, and the
1: genealogies in Genesis help us trace God's promise of the woman's offspring through a specific line. It goes from Adam and Eve to Seth, Noah and Shem, and finally to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God here is choosing this particular lineage to bring the promised snake crusher.
0: So people continue to sin against God after Noah's flood, of course, but God promises that the answer to sin will come through the lineage of Abraham. Yes,
1: which is ironic because the key women in the Genesis story, Sarah, Abraham's wife, Rebecca, Isaac's wife, and Rachel, Jacob's wife, they all have difficulty getting pregnant. But in each case, God intervenes and keeps his promise alive. And this is another major theme connected to God's promise in Genesis chapter three fifteen, faith or trusting in God's promises.
0: While the serpent tried to get Adam and Eve to doubt God's words, the unfolding of the promise in Genesis shows that his words can be trusted.
1: And what's even more impressive is that when you read Genesis, these people make some terrible choices. They're they're flawed sinners, just like us today. They show dishonesty and favoritism in their family. They have multiple wives. There's treachery. There's jealousy and hatred between their children. And yet, despite all these human failings, God still remains true to his word and keeps his promise.
0: Okay, so I think we've gone long enough ignoring the talking snake in the room. So I know it's going back a little bit in the conversation, but who is the serpent? Because Genesis 3:1 describes it as crafty, a beast of the field, but it seems to be something more than a normal animal. Are we talking about Satan here?
1: Yeah, the identity of the serpent actually isn't revealed in Genesis or the rest of the Pentateuch. But the New Testament connects the serpent with Satan. Here's a passage from Revelation 12, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. That seems to be a pretty clear reference back to Genesis. And there's another passage in Revelation chapter 20 as well. Now, the word Satan means adversary because he's the adversary or the enemy of God and all humanity. And the word devil means slanderer or accuser because he accuses God and humanity.
0: Like in the book of Job, when he accuses Job of serving God only because God had blessed him.
1: Exactly. So this is a creature in rebellion against God who wants other created beings to doubt God's goodness and set themselves against God's purposes. Now, other New Testament passages show that the serpent was widely understood by Christians to be Satan. Romans sixteen twenty, Second uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll look at those later. And the devil uh, tempted Jesus in the wilderness in much the same way he tempted Eve in the garden. And John says that the devil was a liar and a murderer from the beginning, 1 John 3. Likewise, the evil angels whom the devil rules over would be the serpent's offspring, as well as human beings who lie and murder and act like the devil, just like Cain. Now, in addition to the New Testament are Jewish writings written around the same time, which are not found in the Bible, the Apocalypse of Moses, Enoch, Maccabees, the wisdom of Solomon, and they all associate the serpent with Satan.
0: But I thought the devil was a spiritual being, but in the garden it appears as a snake. Did it take the form of a snake or inhabit the body of a snake?
1: Well, the scripture doesn't give an answer, but that's a good possibility. If the devil is a supernatural spiritual being and Adam and Eve were earthly human beings, then it's possible that the devil had to assume some earthly form in order to communicate with them and tempt them to sin. Now, in other places in the Bible, the image of a serpent or a dragon is often associated with the devil.
0: So if Genesis 3.15 is a prophecy about the downfall of Satan and all his followers, then that means that the woman's offspring has to be Jesus. Mm -hmm. We talked about how the Jewish people interpreted the serpent as the devil. Did they also interpret the offspring slash seed of the woman as the Messiah? They did,
1: though certainly not in terms of a crucified Messiah. But the ancient Israelites traced the seed or offspring promise through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah all leading to King David, through whom God promised to establish his eternal kingdom. And there's some passages about David that are really interesting and that tie into Genesis 3.15. David's royal descendant would crush his enemies, Psalm 89.24. He would make them lick the dust, Psalm 72 and verse 9. They would all fall under his feet when he trampled them and subdued them, 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 110. And even though there are any New Testament passages which explicitly state that Jesus fulfills this promise, there are many passages which allude to it. For example, 1 John 3 in verse 8 says, The devil has been sinning from the beginning. This is a clear reference to the Garden of Eden. The reason the Son
0: of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And he came into the world to destroy the devil's work through a woman whom the devil deceived in the first place. The woman's childbearing capability would be the means of the serpent's defeat.
1: Yeah, and Paul emphasizes this too. He says in Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman. And Jesus had no earthly father, fulfilling Genesis 3.15's her seed, not his promise. Matthew sees Jesus' miraculous conception as the fulfillment of prophecy in Isaiah 7, as well as the, his birth in Bethlehem in Micah chapter 5. Now, Paul may be making a reference to Genesis chapter 3:15 when he says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, 15, but women will be saved through childbearing.
0: And I think we realize this means that not only mothers can be saved.
1: Uh, certainly not. But he is speaking about women here corporately. It's like the woman's role in childbearing, which came under a curse in the beginning, is now the means of salvation in Christ. In the garden, the woman was used as a pawn by the serpent to destroy humanity, but God's plan was for the woman to be the means of the serpent's downfall and humanity's salvation.
0: So through one type of miraculous life, God is going to bring about another, all made possible by Jesus' death on the cross, which was the bruising of the heel, the fatal snakebite.
1: Yes, but
0: that snake
1: bite was no victory for the serpent. So, In his death, Jesus answered the sin problem by dying as a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. And in his resurrection, Jesus answered the death problem by being raised from the dead never to die again. And the scripture was fulfilled, death was swallowed up in victory.
0: So this promise is describing a great spiritual battle between the Messiah and the spiritual enemy, the devil, with the Messiah coming out on top.
1: Yes, and Jesus would not just subjugate the devil, but all spiritual powers which oppose God. Paul said that Jesus was made king in the resurrection and sat down on his heavenly throne far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. That's Ephesians 1. Though he looked disarmed and ashamed on the cross, Paul could see that Jesus was actually disarming the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame and triumphing over them, Colossians 2.15. And Jesus must reign as king until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death.
0: So if both the devil and all who follow him would be defeated and Jesus would be victorious, does this mean that all who follow Jesus share in his victory?
1: Yes. All those who are in Christ become part of that righteous seed of Abraham who strike a blow on the head of the serpent every time they follow Jesus and every time they obey God. Paul says to Christians in Rome that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's Romans 16 and verse 20. So just as David fought Goliath as Israel's representative, and Israel through David shared in his victory, Jesus conquered Satan on our behalf, and we, through him, share in his victory.
0: Meaning that what is true of the Messiah is also true of his people. And Genesis 3.15 isn't exclusively about Jesus.
1: Yes, but sharing in his victory also means we share in facing the attacks of the serpent. Revelation 12:17 records a great spiritual battle between good and evil. It says, Then the dragon, we know who that is, became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Those are Christians. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So although the church will be persecuted, Christians can take comfort that in the end they're going to be victorious if they remain faithful. Therefore, this spiritual battle continues, although the outcome of the war has already been decided. Christians today are still in danger of being deceived by the evil one. For example, Paul warned the Corinthians, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ.
0: So Satan still disguises himself in order to deceive God's people and get us to doubt God's word.
1: Right, but because Christ has come and crushed the head of the serpent in his death and his resurrection, we know that God is trustworthy and that we are, as Paul says, not ignorant of Satan's schemes.
0: Just as the resurrected Jesus was lifted up above all rule and authority in the heavenly places, so are all those in Christ elevated with him. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us,
1: even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with
0: him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For all of the pain and suffering introduced through the fall of man, the God of all things still finds a way to tell his story. In the midst of the curse, he is showing us a path towards restored humanity and full reconciliation with our creator.
1: Thanks so much for listening. Join us next time as we continue the true story of the Bible with God's promise to Noah.